Section 7 of State of the Union Addresses, 1869-1876. through 1876. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 7, Ulysses S. Grant, December 1, 1873, Part 2. War Department. The attention of Congress is invited to the recommendations contained in the report of the Secretary of War herewith accompanying. The apparent great cost of supporting the Army is fully explained by this report, and I hope it will receive your attention. While inviting your general attention to all the recommendations made by the Secretary of War, there are two which I would especially invite you to consider. First, the importance of preparing for war in time of peace by providing proper armament for our seacoast defenses. Proper armament is of vastly more importance than fortifications. The latter can be supplied very speedily for temporary purposes when needed. The former cannot. The second is the necessity of reopening promotion in the staff corps of the Army. Particularly is this necessity felt in the medical, pay, and ordnance departments. At this time it is necessary to employ contract surgeons to supply the necessary medical attendance required by the Army. With the present force of the pay department, it is now difficult to make the payments to troops provided for by law. Long delays in payments are productive of desertions and other demoralization, and the law prohibits the payment of troops by other than regular Army paymasters. There are now 16 vacancies in the Ordnance Department, thus leaving that branch of the service without sufficient officers to conduct the business of the different arsenals on a large scale if ever required. Navy Department during the past year, our Navy has been depleted by the sale of some vessels no longer fit for naval service and by the condemnation of others not yet disposed of. This, however, has been more than compensated for by the repair of six of the old wooden ships and by the building of eight new sloops of war authorized by the last Congress. The building of these latter has occurred at a doubly fortunate time. They are about being completed at a time when they may possibly be much needed, and the work upon them has not only given direct employment to thousands of men, but has no doubt been the means of keeping open establishments for other work at a time of great financial distress. Since the commencement of last month, however, the distressing occurrences which have taken place in the waters of the Caribbean Sea, almost on our very seaboard, while they illustrate most forcibly the necessity always existing that a nation situated like ours should maintain in a state of possible efficiency a navy adequate to its responsibilities, has at the same time demanded that all the effective force we really have shall be put in immediate readiness for warlike service. This has been and is being done promptly and effectively, and I am assured that all the available ships and every authorized man of the American Navy will be ready for whatever action is required for the safety of our citizens or the maintenance of our honor. This, of course, will require the expenditure in a short time of some of the appropriations which were calculated to extend through the fiscal year, but Congress will, I doubt not, understand and appreciate the emergency, and will provide adequately not only for the present preparation, but for the future maintenance of our naval force. The Secretary of the Navy has, during the past year, been quietly putting some of our most effective monitors in condition for service, and thus the exigency finds us in a much better condition for work than we could possibly have been without his action. Post Office Department A complete exhibit is presented in the accompanying report of the Postmaster General of the operations of the Post Office Department during the year. 
The ordinary postal revenues for the fiscal year, ended June 30, 1873, amounted to $22,996,741.57, and the expenditures of all kinds to $29,084,945.67. The increase of revenues over 1872 was $1,081,315.20, and the increase of expenditures $2,426,753.36. Independent of the payments made from special appropriations for mail steamship lines, the amount drawn from the general treasury to meet deficiencies was $5,265,475. The constant and rapid extension of our postal service, particularly upon railways, and the improved facilities for the collection, transmission, distribution, and delivery of the mails, which are constantly being provided, account for the increased expenditures of this popular branch of the public service. The total number of post offices in operation on June 30, 1873, was 33,244, a net increase of 1,381 over the number reported the preceding year. The number of presidential offices was 1,363, an increase of 163 during the year. The total length of railroad mail routes at the close of the year was 63,457 miles, an increase of 5,546 miles over the year 1872. Fifty-nine railway post office lines were in operation June 30, 1873, extending over 14,866 miles of railroad routes and performing an aggregate service of 34,925 miles daily. The number of letters exchanged with foreign countries was 27,459,185, an increase of 3,096,685 over the previous year, and the postage thereon amounted to $2,021,310.86. The total weight of correspondence exchanged in the mails with European countries exceeded 912 tons, an increase of 92 tons over the previous year. The total cost of the United States Ocean Steamship Service, including $725,000 paid from special appropriations to subsidize lines of mail steamers, was $1,047,271.35. New or additional postal conventions have been concluded with Sweden, Norway, Belgium, Germany, Canada, Newfoundland, and Japan, reducing postage rates on correspondence exchanged with those countries, and further efforts have been made to conclude a satisfactory postal convention with France, but without success. I invite the favorable consideration of Congress to the suggestions and recommendations of the Postmaster General for an extension of the free delivery system in all cities having a population of not less than 10,000, for the prepayment of postage on newspapers and other printed matter of the second class, for a uniform postage and limit of weight on miscellaneous matter, for adjusting the compensation of all postmasters not appointed by the President by the old method of commissions on the actual receipts of the office instead of the present mode of fixing the salary in advance upon special returns, and especially do I urge favorable action by Congress on the important recommendations of the Postmaster General for the establishment of United States Postal Savings Depositories. Your attention is also again called to a consideration of the question of postal telegraphs and the arguments adduced in support thereof, in the hope that you may take such action in connection therewith as in your judgment will most contribute to the best interests of the country.
Department of Justice. Affairs in Utah require your early and special attention. The Supreme Court of the United States, in the case of Clinton v. Engelbrecht, decided that the United States Marshal of that territory could not lawfully summon jurors for the district courts, and those courts hold that the territorial marshal cannot lawfully perform that duty because he is elected by the legislative assembly and not appointed as provided for in the act organizing the territory. All proceedings at law are practically abolished by these decisions, and there have been but few or no jury trials in the district courts of that territory since the last session of Congress. Property is left without protection by the courts, and crimes go unpunished. To prevent anarchy there, it is absolutely necessary that Congress provide the courts with some mode of obtaining jurors, and I recommend legislation to that end, and also that the probate courts of the territory, now assuming to issue writs of injunction and habeas corpus, and to try criminal cases and questions as to land titles, be denied all jurisdiction not possessed ordinarily by courts of that description. I have become impressed with the belief that the Act approved March 2, 1867, entitled An Act to Establish a Uniform System of Bankruptcy Throughout the United States, is productive of more evil than good at this time. Many considerations might be urged for its total repeal, but if this is not considered advisable, I think it will not be seriously questioned that those portions of said act providing for what is called involuntary bankruptcy operate to increase the financial embarrassments of the country. Careful and prudent men very often become involved in debt in the transaction of their business, and though they may possess ample property, if it could be made available for that purpose to meet all their liabilities, yet, on account of the extraordinary scarcity of money, they may be unable to meet all their pecuniary obligations as they become due, in consequence of which they are liable to be prostrated in their business by proceedings in bankruptcy at the instance of unrelenting creditors. People are now so easily alarmed as to monetary matters that the mere filing of a petition in bankruptcy by an unfriendly creditor will necessarily embarrass and oftentimes accomplish the financial ruin of a responsible businessman. Those who otherwise might make lawful and just arrangements to relieve themselves from difficulties produced by the present stringency in money are prevented by their constant exposure to attack and disappointment by proceedings against them in bankruptcy and, besides, the law is made use of in many cases by obdurate creditors to frighten or force debtors into a compliance with their wishes and into acts of injustice to other creditors and to themselves. I recommend that so much of said act as provides for involuntary bankruptcy on account of the suspension of payment be repealed. Your careful attention is invited to the subject of claims against the government and to the facilities afforded by existing laws for their prosecution. Each of the departments of state, treasury, and war has demands for many millions of dollars upon its files, and they are rapidly accumulating. To these may be added those now pending before Congress, the Court of Claims, and the Southern Claims Commission, making in the aggregate an immense sum. Most of these grow out of the rebellion, and are intended to indemnify persons on both sides for their losses during the war, and not a few of them are fabricated and supported by false testimony. Projects are on foot, it is believed, to induce Congress to provide for new classes of claims and to revive old ones through the repeal or modification of the statute of limitations by which they are now barred. 
i presume these schemes if proposed will be received with little favor by congress and i recommend that persons having claims against the united states cognizable by any tribunal or department thereof be required to present them at an early day and that legislation be directed as far as practicable to the defeat of unfounded and unjust demands upon the government and i would suggest as a means of preventing fraud that witnesses be called upon to appear in person to testify before those tribunals having said claims before them for adjudication probably the largest saving to the national treasury can be secured by timely legislation on these subjects of any of the economic measures that will be proposed you will be advised of the operations of the department of justice by the report of the attorney general and i invite your attention to the amendments of existing laws suggested by him with the view of reducing the expenses of that department department of the interior the policy inaugurated towards the indians at the beginning of the last administration has been steadily pursued and i believe with beneficial results it will be continued with only such modification as time and experience may demonstrate as necessary with the encroachment of civilization upon the indian reservations and hunting grounds disturbances have taken place between the indians and whites during the past year and probably will continue to do so until each race appreciates that the other has rights which must be respected the policy has been to collect the indians as rapidly as possible on reservations and as far as practicable within what is known as the indian territory and to teach them the arts of civilization and self-support where found off their reservations and endangering the peace and safety of the whites they have been punished and will continue to be for like offenses the indian territory south of kansas and west of arkansas is sufficient in area and agricultural resources to support all the indians east of the rocky mountains in time no doubt all of them except a few who may elect to make their homes among white people will be collected there as a preparatory step for this consummation i am now satisfied that a territorial form of government should be given them which will secure the treaty rights of the original settlers and protect their homesteads from alienation for a period of twenty years the operations of the patent office are growing to such a magnitude and the accumulation of material is becoming so great that the necessity of more room is becoming more obvious day by day i respectfully invite your attention to the reports of the secretary of the interior and commissioner of patents on this subject the business of the general land office exhibits a material increase in all its branches during the last fiscal year during that time there were disposed of out of the public lands thirteen million thirty thousand six hundred six acres being an amount greater by one million one hundred sixty five thousand six hundred thirty one acres than was disposed of during the preceding year of the amount disposed of one million six hundred twenty six thousand two hundred sixty six acres were sold for cash two hundred fourteen thousand nine hundred forty acres were located with military land warrants three million seven hundred ninety three thousand six hundred twelve acres were taken for homesteads six hundred fifty three thousand four hundred forty six acres were located with agricultural college script six million eighty three thousand five hundred thirty six acres were certified by railroads seventy six thousand five hundred seventy six acres were granted to wagon roads two hundred thirty eight thousand five hundred forty eight acres were approved to states as swamp lands one hundred thirty eight thousand six hundred eighty one acres were certified for agricultural colleges common schools universities and seminaries 
190,775 acres were approved to states for internal improvements, and 14,222 acres were located with Indian script. The cash receipts during the same time were $3,408,515.50, being $190,415.50 in excess of the receipts of the previous year. During the year, 30,488,132 acres of public land were surveyed, an increase over the amount surveyed the previous year of 1,037,193 acres, and added to the area previously surveyed, aggregate 616,554,895 acres, which have been surveyed, leaving 1,218,443,505 acres of the public land still unsurveyed. The increased and steadily increasing facilities for reaching our unoccupied public domain and for the transportation of surplus products enlarged the available field for desirable homestead locations, thus stimulating settlement and extending year by year, in a gradually increasing ratio, the area of occupation and cultivation. The expressed desire of the representatives of a large colony of citizens of Russia to emigrate to this country, as is understood with the consent of their government, if certain concessions can be made to enable them to settle in a compact colony, is of great interest as going to show the light in which our institutions are regarded by an industrious, intelligent, and wealthy people desirous of enjoying civil and religious liberty and the acquisition of so large an immigration of citizens of a superior class would without doubt be of substantial benefit to the country. I invite attention to the suggestion of the Secretary of the Interior in this behalf. There was paid during the last fiscal year for pensions, including the expense of disbursement, $29,185,289.62, being an amount less by $984,050.98 than was expended for the same purpose the preceding year. Although this statement of expenditures would indicate a material reduction in amount compared with the preceding year, it is believed that the changes in the pension laws at the last session of Congress will absorb that amount the current year. At the close of the last fiscal year, there were on the pension rolls 99,804 invalid military pensioners and 112,088 widows, orphans, and dependent relatives of deceased soldiers, making a total of that class of 211,892. 18,266 survivors of the War of 1812 and 5,058 widows of soldiers of that war pensioned under the Act of Congress of February 14, 1871, making a total of that class of 23,319. 1,480 invalid Navy pensioners and 1,770 widows, orphans, and dependent relatives of deceased officers, sailors, and Marines of the Navy, making a total of Navy pensioners of 3,200 and a grand total of pensioners of 311 classes of 238,411, showing a net increase during the last fiscal year of 6,182. During the last year, the names of 16,405 pensioners were added to the rolls, and 10,223 names were dropped therefrom for various causes. The system adopted for the detection of frauds against the government in the matter of pensions has been productive of satisfactory results, but legislation is needed to provide, if possible, against the perpetration of such frauds in future.
The evidently increasing interest in the cause of education is a most encouraging feature in the general progress and prosperity of the country, and the Bureau of Education is earnest in its efforts to give proper direction to the new appliances and increased facilities which are being offered to aid the educators of the country in their great work. The ninth census has been completed, the report thereof published and distributed, and the working force of the Bureau disbanded. The Secretary of the Interior renews his recommendation for a census to be taken in 1875, to which subject the attention of Congress is invited. The original suggestion in that behalf has met with the general approval of the country, and even if it be not deemed advisable at present to provide for a regular quinquennial census, a census taken in 1875, the report of which could be completed and published before the 100th anniversary of our national independence, would be especially interesting and valuable as showing the progress of the country during the first century of our national existence. It is believed, however, that a regular census every five years would be of substantial benefit to the country, inasmuch as our growth hitherto has been so rapid that the results of the decennial census are necessarily unreliable as a basis of estimates for the latter years of a decennial period. District of Columbia under the very efficient management of the Governor and the Board of Public Works of this district, the City of Washington is rapidly assuming the appearance of a capital of which the nation may well be proud. From being a most unsightly place three years ago, disagreeable to pass through in summer in consequence of the dust arising from unpaved streets and almost impassable in the winter from the mud, it is now one of the most sightly cities in the country and can boast of being the best paved. The work has been done systematically, the plans, grades, location of sewers, water, and gas mains being determined upon before the work was commenced, thus securing permanency when completed. I question whether so much has ever been accomplished before in any American city for the same expenditures. The government having large reservations in the city, and the nation at large having an interest in their capital, I recommend a liberal policy toward the District of Columbia, and that the government should bear its just share of the expense of these improvements. Every citizen visiting the capital feels a pride in its growing beauty, and that he too is part owner in the investments made here. I would suggest to Congress the propriety of promoting the establishment in this district of an institution of learning or university of the highest class by the donation of lands. There is no place better suited for such an institution than the national capital. There is no place in which every citizen is so directly interested. Civil Service Reform In three successive messages to Congress, I have called attention to the subject of civil service reform. Action has been taken so far as to authorize the appointment of a board to devise rules governing methods of making appointments and promotions, but there has never been any action making these rules, or any rules binding or even entitled to observance, where persons desire the appointment of a friend or the removal of an official who may be disagreeable to them. To have any rules effective, they must have the acquiescence of Congress as well as of the executive. I commend, therefore, the subject to your attention and suggest that a special committee of Congress might confer with the Civil Service Board during the present session for the purpose of devising such rules as can be maintained, and which will secure the service of honest and capable officials, and which will also protect them in a degree of independence while in office. Proper rules will protect Congress as well as the executive from much needless persecution and will prove of great value to the public at large. 
I would recommend for your favorable consideration the passage of an enabling act for the admission of Colorado as a state in the Union. It possesses all the elements of a prosperous state, agricultural and mineral, and, I believe, has a population now to justify such admission. In connection with this, I would also recommend the encouragement of a canal for purposes of irrigation from the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains to the Missouri River. As a rule, I am opposed to further donations of public lands for internal improvements owned and controlled by private corporations, but in this instance, I would make an exception. Between the Missouri River and the Rocky Mountains, there is an arid belt of public land from 300 to 500 miles in width, perfectly valueless for the occupation of man, for the want of sufficient rain to secure the growth of any product. An irrigating canal would make productive a belt as wide as the supply of water could be made to spread over across this entire country, and would secure a cordon of settlements connecting the present population of the mountain and mining regions with that of the older states. All the land reclaimed would be clear gain. If alternate sections are retained by the government, I would suggest that the retained sections be thrown open to entry under the homestead laws, or sold to actual settlers for a very low price. I renew my previous recommendation to Congress for general amnesty. The number engaged in the late rebellion, yet laboring under disabilities, is very small, but enough to keep up a constant irritation. No possible danger can accrue to the government by restoring them to eligibility to hold office. I suggest for your consideration the enactment of a law to better secure the civil rights which freedom should secure, but has not effectually secured, to the enfranchised slave. Ulysses S. Grant End of Section 7 Recorded by E. Winters